arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. My father, James R. Hoffa, has been missing for some 32 hours. He left for an appointment at Max's Red Fox restaurant at approximately 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, July 30, 1975. He called home at approximately 2.15 p.m. We have not heard from him since. I'm, uh, I don't know wh- who done it, but I imagine he's got a cement jacket in the bottom of the Detroit River. What in the world does raw footage of Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance have to do with the Matthias Jones series, specifically the life and times of Charlie Diaper? First, I didn't write a book based on what happened to Hoffa. After looking back after a couple of years, I can see one commonality. A powerful mob-related boss is missing. The Jones story begins during a college baseball game where a hot Mustang is continuously and suspiciously cruising around the outside perimeter of Larson Field. Hmm. I can give one clue as to what happens at the beginning of this episode. Lark, the Dunderhead, a spectator in the game, harasses the umpire, an old nemesis. Oh boy. Here is episode one, and as the book progresses, we'll find out exactly who Charlie Diaper was. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper by Robert P. Fitton, Matthias Jones series, begins now. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper. Prologue. Larson Field, Hamilton College, Hamilton, New Hampshire, April Fool's Day. Lark Larson was born on April Fool's Day and spent his life fulfilling his legacy. In the cool spring air, Matthias Jones, while attempting to coach the Hamilton College baseball team, could not ditch Lark and his incessant rambling about his birthday party and upcoming wedding. The wedding had sent Lark into a volcanic surge of emotional distress. Okay, Lark. Okay, let's discuss this later, said Jones, buttoning his red Hamilton warm-up jacket. I have a game going here. Games take care of themselves, Matthias. Now Jones had a new understanding as to why Lark had such an abysmal coaching record. Further distracting Jones was the white Mustang that had circled Larson Field since the second inning. Under the bare tree branches, the car's wide blue stripes and resonating glass packs unnerved Jones even though he had a six-run lead. Lark, dressed in a red blazer and a sporty hat with a small feather on the side, prattled on about his pending marriage to his longtime girlfriend, Flo Nightingale. She canceled my birthday party. Stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. Lark, will you go sit down on the bleachers? yelled Jones, losing his patience with the jittery lark. Lanky Corky struck out the batter with a changeup. Nice pitch, Corky. I've been in the thick of athletic contests all my life, Matthias. Rock em, sock em. Lark punched the air as if he were in a backyard brawl, and then he turned toward the St. Pat's bench. St. Pat's is a bunch of losers. You especially, Mac. Longtime umpire Bill Cinco, never a fan of Lark, spun from behind the plate. He gripped the side of his mask. Larson, scram! You don't like somebody double-checking your calls, do you, Bill? Now Cinco flipped the mask over his head and called timeout. Then he yelled as he stomped toward Lark. 
You get the hell off the field, Larson! I can't help it if you're blind as a bat, Bill. Only you can get dumber with age, Larson. Lark, tone it down and get off the field. I don't want Corky's arm getting stiff. Jones signaled to Corky to begin warming up. Then you tell this bozo to shut his big mouth. Bozo? Bill, his face crimson red, plowed up to Lark, who was not even a part of the game. Look you over the hill, loser. Lark bumped Bill with his chest. Bill thrust his index finger toward the front gate. You! You're out of here! Yeah, I'll go downtown and buy you a pair of glasses, Billy Blind Eyes. Bill started toward Lark, but Jones intervened, holding Bill back from popping Lark. You old coot! The Mustang's resonating glass packs echoed around the field. Lark marched toward the gate as the car passed along Hamilton Street. When Lark shoved his right arm upward under his forearm, Jones raised his brows at his assistant coach, Woozy Williams. Always a class act, Woozy. Lark kicked open the front gate, but tripped on the lower metal catch. Corky finished warming up and signaled to Jones. What a wipeout, George, said Jones to George Strickland, who was now behind the Hamilton team bench. Strickland adjusted his policeman's hat. Does that mean you feel sorry for Mac? Jones chuckled. I don't feel sorry for Mac at all, George. He'd do the same to me. If he could find someone who could hit the ball. Sometimes I think you take delight in other people's losses. Well, on the playing field I do, said Jones, clapping. Ducks on the pond, Craig. Ducks on the pond. This game is over. I'm going back to the station. Don't you want to see me shake Mac's hand, George? I'll say this for Lark. He never wallowed in somebody else's defeat. Oh, yeah? Well, you better go back and read some of the game summaries from the Enterprise and the Gazette, George. Point taken. Have a nice day, Chief Strickland, said Jones as Craig took a second strike. Have to swing there, Craig. Have to swing. Craig struck out on the next pitch, and the two teams moved to the top of the ninth. Strickland's blue-and-white SUV cruiser headed along the fence and back toward the town common. Jones caught sight of Mac, arms crossed and shaking his head. But that was just for show. Nothing ever really bothered Mac. Even after Hamilton shut down the last three batters, happy-go-lucky Mac crossed behind home plate to shake Jones's hand as the teams lined up. The bulldog-necked Mac squeezed Jones's hand. Thias, that's uh, one for the record books. It was. Oh, if it were you, you'd be climbing up the backstop. Maybe. Maybe nothing. Hey, I'm sorry I couldn't make that Sox game with you and Billy Bobcat. Seven years ago, Billy was the premier sports writer in Prince William and even Boston. Locke didn't like him. Billy is a little weird. I wish Locke would stay away from the games. Locke's brown sedan's engine rumbled until it turned over and smoke spewed from the tailpipe. Maybe you heard you, Matthias. Tom McGill told me that Billy Bobcat took a job in Florida. Not for the money, the climate. I heard he's bored down there. Where is McGill? He's usually at the games. McGill's on vacation in L.A. His brother moved there from Philly. Just as well, McGill and Billy Bobcat hate each other. After Billy left, the sports writing was pretty bad. Jones faced the galvanized backstop. It was non-existent when I came to town. Well, uh, Jerry St. Clair and Billy were good friends. Jerry St. Clair? That old bag of wind? Max smiled. The Gazette turned to Mayor Picotter and politics. 
Don't forget Herbert Lane. I don't know how to categorize our illustrious district attorney. Let's see, we have pompous, arrogant, the Mustang rolled onto Hamilton Street. Jones could not see the driver as he watched the loud sports car. Herbert is vindictive, boring, incompetent, loudmouthed, and probably crooked, said Mac. Yet he gets reelected every time. Lark's long brown sedan, louder than the mysterious Mustang, fishtailed along the fence, and then the brake lights heightened red. Then Lark spun 180 degrees in the dirt as the Mustang skidded to a stop. I can't believe that Lark is really getting married, said Mac. I can't believe that Lark is still driving on the road, chuckled Jones. Lark's erratic driving had forced the Mustang to stop abruptly dead center on Hamilton Street. Maybe Flo will do the driving in the marriage. As Jones spoke, a bright orange flash preceded a blast loud enough to send both men to the grass. Then a second explosion blew the top of the car skyward as the vehicle skidded to a stop. Flaring orange flames extended 20 feet into the air, and black smoke billowed into the blue sky. Yet Lark casually drove in the opposite direction toward campus. Everyone in the outfield! yelled Jones on his feet as he grabbed his cell. Center field on the double! shouted Mac, using his getting attention voice. Jones, as he ran into the outfield with both teams, saw a small gray car at the top of the hill creep onto Main Street and then swing back toward town. With everyone safe near the music conservatory overlooking center field, Jones dialed George Strickland. He trotted toward the infield and the side gate as Strickland's line rang. He rushed through the gate, but the heat from the fire, already intense, caused him to retreat. The orange flames reflected over his warm-up jacket. Strickland's goofy deputy, Wendell Harris, answered the phone. George Strickland's cell phone? Wendell, car on fire. Larson Stadium, call PW911. Who is this, Arnie? I'm not going to fall for that one again. You idiot, get somebody out here. Sure, sure. Jones closed his eyes for a second. I called the fire department. We can't get any closer said Jones. That thing is an inferno. With the flames reaching upward, Jones attempted to approach the car, but the heat was brutal. Jones stepped back with Mac inside the fence. The smell of burning rubber hung over the area. He typed the numbers from a light blue Connecticut plate on the Mustang into his phone. Fire truck sirens approached from south of town. His phone rang. Jones! Science, this is George. Wendell is a fool! that breaking news? I hear the fire truck. Fortunately, Mac called the fire department. This Mustang just blew up. I'm on my way. Darkness came quickly that spring afternoon. Spotlights from Strickland's SUV and from Ralphie's towing illuminated the Mustang's charred metal frame. Clayton Morris had already removed body parts from the sealed off area to the coroner's office in Prince William. Jones and Franny moved toward Strickland, near the vehicles ensconced behind Larson Stadium. Arnie Dewis, covered with white foam like a snowman, slipped as he ran up the Hamilton Street Hill. What's that all about? asked Franny. With Arnie, who knows? The same white foam covered the car's frame in Hamilton Street. The black smoke that had just filled the street and ball field had now fizzled to an occasional steam puff from the destroyed engine. Water congregated in the puddles and mixed with the foam around the storm drain. 
Jones tried Coco's phone again. I can't reach Coco. Well, you know Coco, said Franny. He could be anywhere. I haven't been able to reach him for three days, Franny. Strickland, in his shirt sleeves, walked across Hamilton Street to Jones and Franny near the backstop. What a mess. George, did you get a name from that license plate? asked Jones, his breath vaporizing in the cooler air as he spoke. Not yet. Does Locke even know about the explosion, Matthias? asked Franny. Half an hour ago, he was still ranting about Bill Cinco because of that argument. Same old story, said Franny. Strickland put on his jacket. As usual, Locke was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jones moved closer to Strickland and counted on his fingers. A. Why was a car from Connecticut in the area? Someone from the college? B. Why a bomb? The bomb, said Strickland, zipping up his coat was remotely activated, according to Jerry Newsom from the bomb squad. I saw a gray car on the corner of Main Street. New York plate, I saw it too. A New York Jets cover on the front tab. That car you turned around and went back up Main. Jones again looked at the charred Mustang. If we think this through, George, they specifically blew up the car when it reached Hamilton Street. Thias, have you been in contact with anyone in Connecticut? Asked Strickland as he took out his cell. Me? Jones shook his head. We have a game against Morgan State next week. The last time I talked to Al Saban was in February before the season, when we were going over the schedule. Wendell. Put him on speaker, George. Strickland spoke into the phone. Car in question on the bombing is a silver-gray Camry, New York plates, a New York Jets tag in front. Tag number? I don't have it, Wendell. I saw that car before the explosion. Always tell me to get the plate numbers, George. Just broadcast the description, Wendell. Strickland hung up. Unbelievable. Clayton has the body. Well, what's left of it? I heard mumbling about a wallet. We'll see. So Lark didn't set off the bomb by causing the Mustang to stop, asked Franny. Strickland shook his head. First of all, Lark should not be on the road, but he didn't cause this one. Then he looked around. Where's Spike? He jumped off that fire truck and personally put out the car fire. Spike attacks with reckless abandonment, George. Why was Arnie walking around covered in foam? Asked Franny. Spike sprayed Arnie with the foam when Arnie kept pestering him, said Strickland. He called Spike a pretend firefighter. Strickland's cell rang. George Strickland. Yes, Clayton. Oh, hold on. Strickland removed a pad and pen from his pocket. Go ahead. Really? Then who is he? Okay. Got it. Avondale. All right. Thank you. Avondale? Asked Jones as Strickland slipped his phone into his pocket. Avondale, Connecticut. Car belongs to a Marjorie Reed of 652 Purchase Street in Avondale, western part of the state. The driver was Jonathan Miller, also of Avondale. Well, that's very odd, said Franny. What do you think, Matthias? asked Strickland. Jones stared at the car. As if reality had switched, he had the feeling that something big was brewing in Avondale. Then he looked back at Franny. Miller specifically circled the stadium for the better part of an hour, which leads me to think he was stalking me, maybe waiting for the game to end, and then be killed. Chapter 1 Prince William Courthouse, Main Street, Prince William, New Hampshire, April 3rd. 
Coco, in a black suit with a thin blue tie, waited for Uncle Dulio outside the hearing room of the Prince William Courthouse. Testifying courtrooms and lawyers made Coco nervous. Coco's loyalties would be tested with the logbook scandals, having been broken by Daryl Younger at the Gazette. Coco knew too much. Uncle Dulio, still drying his massive paws on several paper towels, emerged from the men's room next to the hearing room's dark wood door. Through the archway to the right, Coco watched lawyers and clerks passing by and climbing the wide staircase to the courtrooms upstairs. I need a cigarette, Dulio. Let's step outside, said the larger Dulio. Where's Macaulay? As Coco moved through the oak door beyond the incoming security scanners, the noisy traffic returned and he stepped onto the sidewalk. He quickly lit a cigarette with his lighter. Smoke from the cigarette spread into the cool April air as the traffic on Main Street pulsed from the traffic light at the corner. You know lawyers, Dulio, they're always late. Especially Boston lawyers who don't know Prince William. Right. I just want to get this clown show over with and head to Fenway. You sure you don't want to go to the game, Dulio? I'm working out. I'm sick of tough guy Lane, even in a pre-hearing statement. Callie has it all planned out, Coco. We'll see. Coco's cell phone rang. He lifted the phone to his hand and raised his brows at Dulio when Fiore's personal number popped on the screen. Mr. Fiore. You have a new number. Oh, you know, you can't be too careful. Let me know next time you change your phone, said Fiore. Yes, sir. I wanted to wish you luck with Lane and your deposition this morning. Thank you, sir. I trust your testimony will be in line with what we discussed in Boston last week. I understand. Understand this. Your relationship with Charlie DePiro is in the past. Charlie DePiro is now demented in a nursing home somewhere. You say you have no idea where. Think of him when you testify, not as Charlie DePiro, but as Charlie Diaper. <laughs> because that poor slob doesn't even know what year it is and he lays in bed peeing in his shorts. Yes, sir. Have a nice day. With a cigarette in his mouth, Coco stared at the phone. I'll remember that. Remember what? asked Dulio. Fiori just called the boss, Charlie Diaper. Dulio's brows went up. No respect. None. You taking the fifth? Dulio, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. After an hour and a half of testimony, Coco was both hungry and his anger brewed at the pompous Herbert Lane. The high-ceiling room had rows of tall windows overlooking the river and the Crosstown Bridge. Walls were painted a light apricot. New Hampshire and American flags were positioned on either side of the empty judge's bench. Herbert Lane and his assistant, Roland Chance, had assembled his folders and notes on the long walnut table to the right. Macaulay sat with three other men on the table to the left. Coco knew his attorney to be an articulate, middle-aged professional man in a thousand-dollar blue suit. His shiny, bald head reflected the overhead white dome lights. Macaulay wrote something on his yellow pad as Herbert Lane, gray toupee in place, leaned toward the silver microphone in front. Well, let's see if we can wrap this up, said Lane. Mr. Stefani, your so-called cloudy memory from seven years ago is quite astounding. I would call it a selective memory. Macaulay sprang to his feet and 
walked in front of the table toward Lane. I objected that, Mr. District Attorney. You're not a physician, are you involved in my client's state of mind or a clinical assessment of his brain? This is a deposition. Now see here, Aaron, said Lane, pointing his finger. The greasy-haired Roland Chance, assistant district attorney, leaned toward Lane and whispered something. Lane rolled his eyes. Strike the last exchange, said Lane. Now, Mr. Stefani, you knew Charles DePiro. Yeah, I knew him. You were close. Objection. What is it now, Mr. McCauley? Asked Lane. That's a general question that could leave my client in an erroneous light. Lane gripped his pencil hard enough to snap it. You listen to me, McCauley. I want to ask a few simple questions for this deposition. Not a simple question, Mr. District Attorney. Coco stared out the window to Canal Street and the docks where he had grown up. The boats filled the harbor toward the ocean. He was ten years old when he first saw the broad-shouldered, dark-haired Charlie DePiro step out of a long black Cadillac and hand out ten-dollar bills to some of the kids on the dock. Coco and his brother Anthony had never seen anyone with a wallet as thick as Charlie DePiro's wallet. Lane held his toupee and struggled to lift his bulbous body out of the chair. Just what do you want me to ask, Counselor? Macaulay never looked up from his yellow pad. How long have you known Mrs. DePiro, Mrs. Stefani? Now wait one minute, Macaulay. I'll ask the questions here, said Lane, turning to Coco. How long have you known Mrs. DePiro, Mrs. Stefani? Twenty-six years. And you reported to him. Objection. What does that mean? Asked Macaulay. Well, this is bombast and nonsensical, nonsensical horse dung, shouted Lane. Is that all? What? shouted Lane, jumping. No, it's not all. You work for DePiro. You were a runner for him as a youth along the docks. Yeah, so what? What's the point, Herbert? asked Macaulay. The point is that Stefani worked his way up the chain when DePiro was the dawn of New England. Unproven, said Macaulay, reading his notes. You know it, and I know it, whined Lane. Were you aware of betting at the Silver Slipper in Boston, Massachusetts? Everyone knows you can place a bet at the Slipper. Aha! So you witnessed illegalities, Mr. Stefani, said the self-assured Lane. I object. Well, you can't object, pompous ass, said Coco to Macaulay. Excuse me, asked Lane, walking around the tables. Listen. Now you listen, Lane. That man took my brother and me off the streets of Prince William, kept us employed. Your brother ran drugs. Shut up. I'm going to lock you up, tough guy. Hold on, Herbert. I've come down here with my client to answer questions concerning the logbook scandals. And all you've got are these ancillary, irrelevant ramblings. And some, you're running off in a tirade, Herbert. All right. What do you know about the logbook scandals? Somebody got ripped off said Coco, extending his feet and folding his hands on his stomach. A scam with Channel Z out of Las Vegas. Don't answer that, said Macaulay. Coco grit his teeth. With all due respect, you don't know what you're talking about. 
You jump into conclusions, Lane. Do you know Biff Johnson and Willard Wilkie? Yeah, they own Channel Z. They're friends of mine. Lane extended his arm and pointed toward Coco. Did you ever help them playing back sporting events several minutes later so bets could be placed? No. Ever make money on such an enterprise? Asked Roland Chance. I'll ask the questions, Roland, said Lane. Yes, Herbert. Well, Stefani? I never made a cent. You saw the logbooks, didn't you, Stefani? You're up to your eyeballs in this, Stefani. Are you quite through? Asked Macaulay, packing his briefcase. Where do you think you're going? Asked Lane, his eyes bugging out. We've answered all your questions, Mr. District Attorney. Next thing you want to know is what Stefani had for breakfast. Steak, eggs, and potatoes, said Coco, laughing. Come on, Herbert, my client has nothing to do with this. We'll see. Next Monday, I'll interview Albert Fiore, and I'll get to the bottom of this, Counselor. Macaulay nodded to Coco, and Coco stood. This will all be tried in Boston, Herbert, and your ego won't allow you to fathom that. And I will interview Charlie DePiro if I can find him. He's got dementia, said Coco. Leave the guy alone. Right. Your compadre, said Lane. Yeah, he was. Coco walked out with Macaulay. He stared at Roland Chance long enough to get the assistant district attorney to look down. Outside, Uncle Dulio stood from the side bench. He made a motion with his head to Coco. Don't worry, Dulio. He didn't lay a glove on me. Coco, said Macaulay, motioning him back. I'll be right back, Dulio. They walked over and near the wide-sweeping staircase. Look, Coco, don't get too cocky. This was an informal hearing and Lane is a buffoon. If the feds get into this and it goes to Boston, it's a whole new ball game. They'll come in for the kill. Hey, I wasn't involved, said Coco. Yeah, but you knew about Charlie and the rest of it. I'm hoping Fiore can squelch this. I ain't gonna worry about that now, Aaron. I'm going to the ball game and then get a good night's sleep. Thanks for your help. Send the bill to Bernie Newman at the club. Macaulay nodded. And Coco, don't answer any questions from any of them. You get me involved. Deal. Coco shook Macaulay's hand. Then he walked across the tiles, loosened his tie, and took out his cigarettes. Taking the beam to Boston? Asked Julio. They'll strip it. No kidding. Gallagher's driving. The way he drives will be at Fenway before batting practice. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, Chapter 2. Jones's Colonial, Main Street, Hamilton, New Hampshire, April 3rd. Jones, in his Hamilton College red shorts and gray hoodie, drank a tall glass of cranberry juice before he went upstairs to shower for the game in Boston. April baseball games in Boston always seemed colder than the Patriots' football games in December. Jones had just set his glass on the counter when the landline rang. He exhaled and picked up the yellow wall phone. Thias Jones. Coach, it's Woozy. Have a little excitement at the St. Pat's game, Wooz? It's like a mafia hit. That's a good point, Woozy. Jones drank more cranberry juice. It's obvious. Whoever killed this kid killed him when he got near the college. Specifically near me. What do you think, Woozy? Well, I just called you to tell you it's going to rain tomorrow. Oh, great. I can set up practice in the gym. Good. Corky needs to loosen up. He threw a minimal amount today. 
The three-hitter was pretty remarkable on Sunday. Ricky's pitching the Collins game in PW at the end of the week. Boys can run around the gyms connecting corridors to loosen up. I have another call coming in, Woos. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Jones. Coach Jones, this is Billy Bobcat. I used to be a reporter for the Prince William Gazette. He had a dry voice as if he were on the verge of coughing. I'm a friend of Father Jim Gallagher. I know who you are, said Jones with a slight smile. What? Yeah. The confused Jones tilted his head. You up here for a Lock Larson's wedding, Billy? Huh? What? asked Jones. I'm here to crash it, crash it good. Why would you do that? Half the time, Lark couldn't keep his damn mouth shut, and the other half, he was making up stories. Sounds like you still hold a grudge. Hold a grudge? The word has been dead at Jones. Jones rolled his eyes and set the empty glass in the sink. You're getting married on this floating gazebo that Arnie Dewars is building on Fisherman's Point at the mouth of the Paquanica River. I sure hope it floats, <laughs> he said, producing a raspy laugh. Ah, then you know Arnie. I knew him when old man Dewars ran the yard. The old man was always covering for that wise-ass kid. He and Lester Larson hit my car went plaster. The old man really let him have it. The lark blamed me for driving to Prince William. With Arnie as a son, the father probably got an easy pass into heaven. Lester isn't still in the Hamilton area, is he? No, Billy, he's gone, said Jones as he turned away from the phone. What about Lester and the wedding? asked Billy. Lark has no way of contacting him. Oh, I didn't know that, said Jones. You can bet your kabunkum, Buster. Yeah, said Jones, making a sickening face as he pursed his lips. After all, Coco Stefani's a member of organized crime. Jones's eyes opened wide. Oh, you know rumors, they take on a life of their own. His brother Anthony was an excellent quarterback for Mac down at St. Pat's 15 years ago. I never seen a kid throw a ball like Anthony. Never liked to be called Tony. Guess he got mixed up in drugs, and it cost him his life, according to Father Jim. Jones did not divulge just how much he knew about Anthony. Anyways, I'm boarding the Gallagher Express around 1.30. I look forward to meeting you. Bring the brew. I like my beer. Then Billy formed an incredible deep stomach burp. <laughs> what? asked Jones. Huh? What? Who? Right. Closing it down, Jones. Billy hung up and Jones stared at the phone. He had read some of Billy's articles stashed in Lark's filing cabinets. Lark had called Billy a shit-bum reporter, but Jones liked Billy's descriptive writing. Then his cell phone rang again. Jones. Jonesy. Coco, you changed your number. I changed my phone, bro. Why? Don't worry about it. You bringing your glove to the game? Asked Coco, chuckling. As a matter of fact, I am. Gonna make the big catch, Hotshot? Maybe. Come on, Jones. Do you ever have a ball hit at you in any big league game? Well, that's not the point, answered Jones. Gallagher just told me that Billy Bobcat is going to Fenway with us. Without listening to that mouth. You two were friends? Friends? You know how many times I threw that moron out of the club, Jonesy? 
Front doorbell sounded. Jones backed down the hall. Bucky Driscoll in his brown security uniform gripped his belt. Bucky. Are you talking about Driscoll, Jonesy? Yeah, he's on the front step. Hold on while I get rid of him. I wouldn't let that screwball on my property. Jones opened the door and the cooler air burst inside the house. Bucky turned. So why are you withholding valuable information, Matthias? What are you talking about, Bucky? This guy's been investigating said information. Bucky's eyes hung low behind his glasses and his lower teeth jutted out. I know how to conduct a covert investigation. You're taking illegal gifts. I need to do my duty and inform Ham Fletcher. Coco erupted on the line. I heard that. That rodent lost his pinhead mind? You do that, Bucky, said Jones. College rules forbid uh, said party receiving renew uh, renew renumeration. Put me on speaker, Jonesy. Jones hit the speaker switch. Hey, secret agent. Who's there? Me. You listen to me, Roden. Back off with Jonesy or I'll have you strung up in your toenails. You'll be sleeping with one eye open. Ha <laughs> ha, Mr. Smitey Pants. Nobody can sleep with one eye open. And then he turned to Jones. Arnie and me just want to go to Fenway with you guys. Huh, go right ahead, moron, I dare you, said Coco. Huh? Jones, smiling, shut off the speaker. Beat it, Bucky. You owe me. Owe you for what? For making my life a living hell? You tell him, Jonesy, said Coco. Jones slammed the door. I'll see you at 2.30, Coco. Listen, I'm bringing Rhonda. You want me to have BB tag along? Oh, yeah, Franny would love that. Ah, I keep forgetting you two are a quote-unquote item. I'm heading over to Gallagher's. We'll be at your house in about an hour. Remember, we're in Gallagher's car. I'll talk to you. Jones raced up the stairs two at a time. As he reached the second floor, his cell phone rang again. I told you to beat it. I beg your pardon? Matthias? Nigel. I'm over at... Flo's house and Lark is having an incredible temper tantrum. Oh, well. Maybe it was from that accident the other day. It wasn't an accident, Nigel. Matthias, I have P.J. Fletcher flying into town from Chicago, and now this. What do you want me to do, Nigel? Let me put Wendell on the line. Wendell? asked Jones. Nigel. Nigel. No, this is Wendell. Wendell, what's going on over there? Jones pulled back the curtain and looked across the common toward Locke and Flo's houses. Wendell's cruiser was parked diagonally to the houses. You're the cop, Wendell. Arrest him. Oh, Locke is beat red. From outside the front door, Jones heard Arnie Dewey's annoying voice. He winced and shook his head. Hey, Matthias. Locke will listen to you, Matthias. Wendell, I'm leaving at 2.30 for Fenway Park. You got any tickets? No, I don't. Wendell, I'll run over, calm lockdown, and then I have to go. Hey, Matthias, said Arnie, continuing his harassment outside. All right, Wendell, all right. When Arnie began knocking on the front door, Jones slipped out the slider and crossed Shore Road. He slithered along the bushes to the common. Arnie's booming voice echoed over the hey, common. Matthias. Jones broke into a run and sprinted toward Mockingbird Lane. Lark and Flo's identical houses stood side by side, hers Harvest Gold and Lark's Pistachio Green. Nigel's Silver Jaguar was parked next to the cruiser.
As Jones slowed at Main Street, Locke's ranting grew louder across the common as Arnie continued to pound on Jones's front door. I won't do it! I won't do it! Calm down, Lark! You don't understand, Wendell! No, Lark! You don't understand! You're creating a public nuisance! Why don't you just shove it, Wendell? Jones raised his brows and smiled. You're under arrest! Lark stormed down the porch and then stumbled in the driveway near his long sedan, a.k.a. the Brown Bomber. Lark! called Jones as Lark opened the driver's side door. Where are you going? As far away from Hamilton as I can drive. I don't think you should be behind the wheel right now. No one needs to tell a seasoned driver how to drive, Matthias. Seasoned? Jones turned toward Lark inside his car. Lark, why are you so upset? Lark, you're about to get married next week. Lark hit the steering wheel, setting off the horn. Oh no! I won't do it! I won't! You've got to be kidding! shouted Jones over the noise. I've got wire cutters in the trunk, said Wendell. Lark had opened the car door and stepped up to the front tire. Lark, you have to shut off the horn, yelled Jones. Lark stepped back and as if he were kicking a field goal, cocked his leg and connected with the tire. The noise stopped. Jones did a double take. Unbelievable. Jones moved around the hood to Lark. Lark's silver-rimmed glasses glistened in the sunlight. He leaned toward Jones. Flo refuses to pay for the wedding. Jones tilted his head. Oh, boy. Well, why don't you just split it? She's the woman. A woman's parents pay and Flo's parents are gone. Oh, passed away? Asked Jones. No, they're living in Romania. Jones stared at Lark for several seconds. Okay, Lark. You two have been waiting to get married for years. Just cough up the dough. She's a spinster is what she is. And what about you? Lark stared at him and his eyes panned back to Flo's porch. He removed his handkerchief and dabbed his forehead. Reminds me of the sweatbox game against Harvard. Hamilton does not play Harvard. Harvard Technical School of Dynamics and Landfill. Doesn't matter, said Jones, pointing toward the house. Just go back in there and split the bill with her. Flo needs to know who's the boss. Lark, if you're smart, and I question whether you are, the woman is always the boss whether she is or not. Got it? I'm not sure I understand that, said Lark with a quizzical expression. Just go apologize and split it. I'm going to Fenway Park. Oh, do you have any more tickets, old boy? Jones started back to the common. No, Lark, I don't. Jones shut the car door as Lark headed back into Flo's house. Jones backed away and walked with great trepidation across the common. When Arnie was no longer at his front door, Jones broke into a jog. He looked forward to the game and meeting former Major League star Vinnie Muntz in the Skybox area, courtesy of Coco's infamous associate in Boston, Albert Fiore. But as he entered the house, he heard someone in the kitchen. Down the end of the hall, Arnie Dewars held a glass of milk and stuffed a sandwich into his mouth. Arnie, what the hell are you doing in my house? You ain't got no jelly. Jones grabbed the milk and ripped the sandwich out of Arnie's mouth. Hey, hey, hey. Arnie, get out. The Buxter said you have Red Sox tickets. I do. I knew it. 
for myself. Ah, oh, come on, Matthias. They're playing the Yankees. Taking a shower and leaving for Fenway. That's okay. I can eat down here while you shower. Forget it, shouted Jones, and then he raised his voice even louder. Get out, Arnie. Touchy, touchy. Arnie scrambled backward and out the sliders. Jones flung the sandwich toward the sink and set the milk on the counter. Idiot. Chapter 3 Route 93 South, Danvers, Massachusetts, April 3rd Gallagher, driving the Lincoln with one hand, casually on the wheel, crossed the Massachusetts border at 85 miles an hour. Jones had just finished talking about his background in Indiana with the tubby Billy Bobcat, who held a 16-ounce Boston swash beer in his right hand. His gray-black whiskers were a couple of days old. Franny looked down at the red, white, and blue beer can as Coco sat quietly in the front seat. Coco's date, Rhonda, a blonde with heavy rouge from Club Max, sat between Gallagher and Coco. Jones leaned toward the front seat. Jim, you're going to get a ticket. How fast are you going? Fast enough. Jones is a little skittish, said Billy. Father Jim will get it fixed. I'm not skittish, Billy, said Jones. There's such a thing as being smart. Oh yeah, how did you get the Hamilton gig anyway? Pay somebody off? Hey, bumcat, said Coco. Shut that trap of yours. You got thrown out of Prince William because of your mouth. Still trying to be a mobster, Coco? Coco leaped over the front seat and threw a punch toward Billy. Hold it, yelled Jones, getting between the two men. You watch yourself, Billy said Coco, reaching into his coat pocket. Coco recruited Jonesy. He flew out to Indiana, said Rhonda. Right, Coco? Who asked you, Rhonda? Oh, come on, Coco. You saw him win a national championship on Channel Z at the club, she said. Hey, Rhonda, just nix the Channel Z crap. What I heard, Jones, you obliterated Lark Larson's so-called seasonal records, said the buzz cut Billy. What records? asked Franny as Jones smiled. Huh? What? Who? What are you talking about, Billy? asked Jones. Larson had an unusual way of coaching sports, said Billy. Yeah, his biography should be losing a way of life, said Franny. I like it, said Billy. Jones's eyes opened wide as Billy guzzled the entire can of beer. Ugh. Then he burped. Be nice said Gallagher. Locke recruited a lot of strange players, said Billy. The weirdest player was Snooky McKenzie, said Jones. Bobcat crunched the beer can. That spastic moron. Then he threw the can out the window. Kindly refrain from throwing things out of the car, shouted Gallagher. You nearly hit that Mercedes, you jamoke, said Coco. He swerved away. Jeez, come on, said Billy. Snooky McKenzie showed up at a football game a while back, and then he was gone, said Jones. Right, Coco? Sure, answered Coco, staring out the window as he shook his head. A real winner, Jonesy. I was going to do a story on that dodo bird, but they chucked him in the nuthouse. It was a state facility, said Gallagher. So, Billy, said Franny, Lark did invite you to the wedding, right? Tell her, Billy, said Jones. Billy shrugged his shoulders. He's crashing the wedding. 
Are you kidding me? Asked Coco. You're a loser, bum cat. Jones covered Billy's mouth as he replied. Lark and Flo have been at each other's throats for years, said Franny. Well, they've always had blowouts. Usually Lark's fault, said Franny. Always Lark's fault, said Jones. Can I speak now, Jones? Asked Billy, removing another beer can from his coat pocket. He popped the top. Just watch your mouth, Billy. Let me tell you something. Lark was good for the community. I wrote up his spaghetti suppers and bake sales. Lark was very popular with the town. But I have to confess, Lark threatened to punch me in the mouth. Yeah, I wonder why. I didn't know Lawson had it in him. Why was Lark so mad? asked Gallagher as he swung the Lincoln toward the connector road to Boston. You wrote good articles, too. Yeah, I also wrote about his idiotic coaching. The man had no real playbook. All this far-out razzle-dazzle bullshit. Hamilton Fletcher liked him, said Jones. Hamilton didn't care about winning as long as he built the Fletcher fortune, said Franny. Yeah, and Ham owns it all now, added Jones. My old contacts say Ham's heart isn't in it. He likes being out on the road, said Billy. Ham is no Hamilton Fletcher, said Jones. Everyone has their talents, Matthias, said Gallagher, as they raced closer to Boston. The skyline came into view at the top of the next hill. Even Lark, he must be number one at something. Look out for number one and try not to step in number two. Rodney Dangerfield, said Billy as he guzzled more beer. Jones stared at Billy and then mumbled words toward the window. Stepping in number two is Locke's forte. Jones rolled his eyes and Franny listened to Billy pontificate as he finished yet another beer in the crowded Fenway Park skybox. Billy relayed a story about Snooky McKenzie being scouted by the New York Giants, but when the scouts arrived at Hamilton College, Snooky pulled one of his stunts. He hurled a football at Norm Jenkins, the lead recruitment scout. A younger lark, impressed by the 60-yard throw, patted Snooky on the back. Jenkins was out cold for 15 minutes, said Billy, his dark eyes brightening as he shook his head. I had the damned article written, and the pompous ass ripped it up. Which pompous ass, asked Jones. Hamilton Fletcher. Hamilton Fletcher was upset with Snooky, asked Franny. I got a carbon copy of that article. Old man Fletcher looks me in the eye and says... And there's that bozo Larson laughing at him like a hyena while Norm Jenkins is stone-cold unconscious. You almost sound like Hamilton, said Jones. I liked Hamilton, even though he was a pain in the ass, said Billy. That he was, said Jones, glancing out the windows at Coco. Rhonda said something to Coco and then re-entered the skybox, shrugging her shoulders. His friend had been unusually quiet. Coco continued smoking a cigarette and stared out over the park. Excuse me one second, Franny. Something's up with Coco. You want another beer, Matthias? Asked Franny, handing him a warm, soft pretzel. Jones can't hold his liquor, <laughs> snapped Billy. I'm fine, Franny, thanks, said Jones as he took a hunk out of the pretzel. So good, so good. 
Jones opened the door as the groundskeeping crew tweaked the infield. Coco turned and grinned as Jones took another bite out of the pretzel. Jonesy, you're walking around here like you lost your best friend, Coco. Don't worry about it. Just keep that weasel away from me. Billy? Yeah, Billy. The guy's a public nuisance. I told you he can't keep his trap shut. Then Coco laughed. <laughs> Anthony broke Billy's nose. Billy never bothered him again. Billy drinks too much. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet, Jonesy, said Coco. I've seen that guy drink for six hours and be stone-cold sober. Well, he's only here for a couple of days. What's the connection with Gallagher? Billy always promoted Gallagher's CYO basketball teams, you know. You know father. Once he likes you, you're all set. I'd say Billy is a liability. Coco said nothing for at least a minute, leaving the cigarette hanging in his mouth. Game's gonna start in a few minutes. Jones lightly tapped his shoulder. What do I have to do, follow you up to observation point? It's a woman, isn't it? I don't want to talk about it. You're in trouble with the law. Just knock it off, will you, Jonesy? Jones stared at Coco. Look, Jonesy, this involves things that you don't want to know about you shouldn't know about. If you need to know, I'll tell you. I respect that, said Jones as the pitchers jogged out to the center field bullpen. I'm looking forward to meeting Vinnie Muntz. 316 lifetime, 475 home runs. Not a shabby performance. Jones's stomach jolted when he thought he saw Arnie and Bucky wandering the aisles along the first base seats. I don't believe it. What the hell are you mumbling about, Jonesy? You don't want to know. I always want to know. Bucky and Arnie. Coco quickly turned toward the mass of fans in the box seats below. If that rodent gets within a hundred yards of these skyboxes, I'll throw his ass over the edge. Driscoll ought to be up with his namesake, the monster seats. With security, there's no way he can get up here. Coco lifted the cigarette and inhaled. Driscoll has a way of finding trouble, and that lame-brained Dewis is right behind him. Can't believe Bucky followed us down here. Driscoll, don't listen. You ought to know that. Jones studied Arnie, arms waving and arguing with one of the Yankees fans along the first base dugout. More Yankee fans surrounded Arnie, and Arnie is another one who can't keep his mouth shut. Look at that jackass, will ya? For once I'm rooting for the Yankee fans. Somebody's gonna whack him. Oh well, said Coco, squinting. And that loser Driscoll, he's two aisles over and he leaves Dewey's to fend them all off. What a rat. Rodent, rat, mongoose, as long as he stays down there. Listen, Vinnie Muntz is supposed to be up here during the seventh inning stretch. Get Franny, Jonesy. Let's watch the game. In the upper seats amidst the crowd buzz, Billy Bobcat leaned toward the group. He removed a beer can from his pocket and took several gulps. I've hated the Yankees since before I was born. Then he burped. <coughs> that would create an unusual theological conundrum, said Gallagher. Billy, no beer in the stands. I know you're a closet Yankees fan, father, said Franny. Watch your language, Franny, said Gallagher, laughing. What are you complaining about? We're up by four runs, said Jones. At Fenway, anything can happen, Jonesy. Jones's phone sounded. Jones, the noisy crowd, almost squelched the call. Coach, this is Bucky Driscoll. The cops are after us. Sorry, bad connection. Jones cut the call. 
Who is that? Wrong number. Franny Snicker. Yeah, right. Look, after this inning, I think we should head inside and wait for Vinny. Jones's phone rang again. Coco grabbed the phone and answered the call. Who is this? Dewey's? What? I don't owe you nothing, pal. Go ahead and try it, dummy. Coco slapped the phone in Jones's hand. My next call is to Winky. The guy with the bag of screws? asked Franny. That's right, Franny. Mr. Dewey's is about to be grounded if he doesn't back off. The crowd roared and everyone stood. I missed it. What happened? asked Coco, now on his feet. Home run, said Billy. What a sweet swing. Jones and Billy watched the broad-shouldered Vinny Muntz swing the bat in slow motion. He wore a green silk shirt and dark pants. Jones had his baseball glove. You always crowded the plate, said Billy. Too damn close. Yeah, and you always wrote about every strikeout, said Vinny. How about another interview, asked Billy. Vinny gave Billy a quirky smile and handed the bat to Jones. Don't forget the wrist, coach. Without strong and accurate wrist movement, you become jelly at the plate. Next spring, I'll make a trip up to New Hampshire and spend a few days with your team. Hey, Vinny, said Coco. You're welcome to come over to Club Max if you're in the Hamilton area. I heard about Club Max, said Vinny. Maybe we can set up an event. Sure. And St. Bart's, we're always open, said Gallagher, pointing. Probably cost him more at the church, whispered Franny. No doubt about that, Franny, said Jones, grinning. Father knows how to rake in the big bucks for the parish. Jones heard someone singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game just outside the glass doors. You hear that, Franny? She pointed at the door. Bucky. Oh, no. How did he get up here? Jones saw both Arnie and Bucky holding large red plastic beer cups as they staggered forward and sang. This is not good. Jones crossed the room, but he was too late. Two of the patrons opened the door, and Arnie and Bucky swerved into the room. Hey, Matthias, said Arnie, screeching at Jones. Arnie, you don't belong here. What's the matter, big boy, said Bucky, slurring his speech. His eyelids hung low and his breath was like the Prince William leeching beds. Don't you like baseball? You screwball. I said you two don't belong here. You don't like to have fun, bellowed Arnie in a loud voice. Hey, there's Vinny Bunce. They both moved forward as Jones tried to block their progress. As Vinny talked to Coco, Bucky turned and Arnie raced toward Vinny with the cup extended. He tripped on the rug and sent a full cup of foam beer over Vinny's silk shirt. Hey, what are you doing, moron? yelled Coco, setting down a box of appetizers. He pushed Arnie backward, but Arnie attempted to stay on his feet and landed on the hors d'oeuvres table. Sandwiches and plates went crashing onto the floor. Hey, can I have your autograph? asked Bucky, getting uncomfortably close to Vinny as Vinny wiped down his shirt with a white towel. Beat it, clown, said Vinny, growing angry. I get it. You want money for your John Hancock, huh? Coco grabbed Bucky by the back of his Red Sox jacket. As several security men ran across the room, Coco lifted Bucky and deposited him with the men. They dragged Arnie out the door and escorted both men through the back area. 
Finney had already left with his people through a side door. The old men were alive, said Coco. I'd make a call to fire Driscoll, no matter what his connection was. Stupid idiots, said Joan. Finney will never come to Hamilton now, not unless they have a public hanging for Dewey's and Driscoll on the Hamilton Town Common. Jones watched Coco dart into the men's room behind the skybox. Then he turned to Franny. Now Vinny's not answering his phone. Do you blame him? asked Franny. Heck no. You'll talk to him once this is blown over, coach. Maybe, Franny, he said as he pounded his baseball glove. I'm going to have a high-level conference with Coco in the men's room. Something's really bothering him. Jones caught sight of Billy holding a glass of beer, boring the management back at the bar. As Jones pushed open the men's room door, somebody repeated Coco's name beyond the stall of the marble-tiled bathroom. Jones stopped at the corner, near the hoppers to the left. Three men standing with the dark-haired Albert Fiore looked dumber than dumb, but had physiques of champion weightlifters. Coco, you listen to me, Coco. Coco, Coco, get this through your head, Coco. I'm telling you direct, growled Fiore. I don't need you singing the praises of Charlie DePiro to that fool district attorney in New Hampshire. Charlie took me off the streets, said Coco. Fiore raised his voice. I don't give a damn what he did for you. You're on thin ice, Coco. If the grand jury convenes and Charlie gets put in a good light, that's bad for us. I hear you, Mr. Fiore. Jones raised his brows and remained next to the hopper. Because, Coco, if Charlie Diaper doesn't take the hit for the logbook, you're done. I don't give two shits about our relationship. You listen to me and listen good. I ain't going down because of those logbooks and Channel Z. Dog-faced big boy and Flatfoot will stay behind here just to give you a reminder. Jones heard fist smacking as Coco wailed in pain. He quickly flipped the light switch. The fighting intensified in the darkness. Jones raced forward. Using his glove, he connected with several punches. He heard scrambling across the tiles. The door opened, and Fiore, ahead of the three men, staggered into the skybox. Jones edged his way to the back and flipped the light switch. Coco, holding his jaw, moved haphazardly across the men's room. Jonesy, listen to me, said Coco, staring at Jones's baseball glove. Have one of the security people get us a rental. Why? Never mind why. We just hammered Fiore's guys. And we may even have clipped Fiore before he got out. I'm screwed. I gotta go into hiding now. Come on, I'll talk to Gallagher. Call Uncle Dulio and have him meet me at the Yellow Dog. He'll know where to go. Jones looked into his eyes. What's this about the logbook in Channel Z? You heard that? Jones nodded. Great. Oh, man, you're right in the thick of this with me. Chapter 4. The Yellow Dog Cafe, north of Boston, April 4th, 2.37 a.m. The Yellow Dog's heating system must have been turned off or kept at a minimum. Jones felt as if he were freezing on the cold sidelines of a late autumn football game. Coco's cigarette smoke rose into the hazy blue light. Thought it was smarter for us to take a U-taxi, said Jones as he sat at the side table with Coco. It's freezing in here. Coco took a drag on a cigarette and gazed up at the blue rim neon clock. 2.30. Dulio should be here by now. He left Hamilton over an hour and a half ago. Jones noticed Coco's shaking hands. 
So they go after Fiori for this logbook thing? Yeah. Will they come after you? <laughs> the feds? The feds will grill me, Jonesy, because they know that I know the whole scam. I wish the boss was all right in the head. Charlie DePiro? Yeah. Where is he? With glazed eyes, Coco turned toward Jones. He's in one of them old age places. Dementia. Jonesy, the boss wasn't an angel, but he was out of the loop on the logbook. What Fiori's going to do is make a sucker out of the boss. Make him take the rap while Fiori walks. And you're standing between Fiori going free or being sent to jail. Yeah. Gallagher's dropping Ronderoff with Bruno at the club, right? Right. And if Billy Bobcat asks anything about this, you tell him to mind his own damn business. I thought that slob was gone for good when he moved to Florida. Is that his real name? No, it's not his real name, Jonesy, said Coco, tightening his face. Name's Billy Bogdanovich. Always rode under the name Billy Bobcat. He likes his brew. Let me tell you the truth about Billy Bobcat. Larson got him fired. Lock Larson, come on. He was in the men's room at the Hamilton Country Club. Bobcat had a few beers, big surprise, started mouthing off about Larson's coaching. Larson's fly was stuck, and when he tried to zip it up, Bobcat took a swing at him. He missed Larson and slammed into the stall, knocking it over. It all got back to the old man. So Hamilton made a call and had Billy fired because he took a swing at Lark. No, Jonesy. The old man called Larson a stiff. The moron wrote in his column that Hamilton Fletcher was a failed businessman who never should have hired Larson. That's what got Bobcat fired. Hamilton was a lot of things, but a failed businessman was not one of them. Bobcat hates Larson. That's why he's flown up here, to ruin his wedding. Did you think Fury would confront you tonight, Coco? Coco stood quickly. I should have seen this Fury thing coming, Jonesy, especially when he got us the meeting with Vinnie Muntz in the skyboxes. I was asleep at the switch. You can't hide for the rest of your life. No, that's not it. He said as he lit another cigarette. He turned back to Jones. Jonesy, I can't let the boss down. If it wasn't for Charlie DePiro, I'd be some bum on Canal Street in Prince William. Or like Anthony, dead. So he was your mentor. Yeah, you could say that. The man had class, Jonesy. He always dressed well, spit polished shoes. He spoke like he was real highbrow. People respected him. Like I say, he wasn't an angel. He did what he had to do. Charlie was everything I wanted to be. When did he start showing signs of dementia? Coco furrowed his brow. Hell, it had to be seven years ago, before Anthony disappeared. One day I walk into his office in the old Hancock building, 22nd floor, and he's acting real strange, rambling. And he forgot some of his orders, Jonesy. He just looked at me for maybe 10 seconds and didn't remember my name. Did he discuss this with his family? <laughs> discuss nothing. This went on for maybe a month. And then he was gone, man. And Albert Fiore took over. Jones walked over to Coco in the bar's blue light. Then go to the feds. They can put you in protective custody. I don't work with the feds. Coco shook his head. I gotta see Charlie. Why? He won't remember anything, Coco. Then I'll talk to Joey. Jones tilted his head. His son? Right. Charlie's wife, Lucille, 
was hit at Nuncio's 15 years ago. I was just a kid. Charlie was shot up but survived. I can still see them shattering those windows. Fiore? Fiore was just a guy who ran a few operations south of Boston. He didn't have the power to hit the boss. Two masked guys walk in and let loose on both Lucille and Charlie. The boss was never the same losing Lucille. Coco checked his watch. Where the hell is Dulio? Traffic? In the middle of the night? Come on, Jonesy. Coco speed dialed Dulio's cell phone. He paced for only a few seconds before speaking. Dulio, where the hell are you? We gotta get out of here. What? Are they behind you now? Okay, okay, 15 minutes. Where is he? Asked Jones as Coco slipped the phone in his jacket pocket. Dulio was tailed out of Prince William. He hightailed it down 495 and came back to Boston on the Mass Pike. If he didn't have his expedition, they would have nailed him. Then they want Dulio dead, too. Coco did a double take. How you think? Let me give you some friendly advice. Don't see Charlie now. Don't tell me what to do, Jonesy. Hey, they'll expect you to do that. Just lay low somewhere and we'll figure out when you can go see him. Fiori doesn't know where the boss is. They've been all over me for years to try and get the location. But you didn't talk. I'd never let the boss down. It's that simple. And you're right about one thing, Jonesy. Dulio and I have to disappear. Where's Charlie? Coco finished his cigarette. Disneyland. I can find out or call his kid. Forget it, Jonesy. You can't match wits with Fiori's organization. Stay out of it. St. Bart's Rectory, Prince William, New Hampshire, April 4th, 1.30 p.m. The forced hot air pushed through the floor grates, circulating the eggs and bacon aromas around St. Bart's Rectory. Jones sat at the breakfast table, even though the kitchen clock had just passed 1.30 p.m. Gallagher's housekeeper, Marie, served him a bowl of cream of wheat with eggs and bacon. Jones crunched the crisp bacon. Thank you, Marie. Father should be here any minute. He was at the civic duty meeting in the mayor's office. He has mass at four before he leaves for vacation. And I have a team meeting about the Morgan State trip tonight at seven. Hard to believe baseball season is here. Father will coach his eighth graders again, said Marie as she poured the coffee. We're five and oh right now, said Jones, yawning. Excuse me. Gallagher popped his head in the door. We'll see what your record is after the Collins game. Gallagher removed his black coat. Coffee, Father? I would like a good cup of coffee. Mayor Picarda must serve those styrofoam cups directly from the vending machine. It's like drinking paint. Ham Fletcher would like that analogy. Marie poured the coffee and then left. Gallagher leaned toward Jones, holding the cup. What in God's name happened to you last night? Look, Father, I appreciate you letting me crash here. Where's Coco? Jones winced and then looked around at the orange-haired Gallagher. Jim, Coco and Dulio have gone underground. Why? asked Gallagher, arching his back straight up. Jones sipped his orange juice. Then he set down the glass. Yesterday, Coco had a preliminary deposition with Herbert Lane. What happened? Something called the logbook scandal. Ah, Fiore and Charlie DePiro. I don't remember Coco being involved in that. Jones lifted the scrambled eggs on his fork. You're right. Coco had nothing to do with it, but he knew the scam. I get it. And Fiori is afraid Coco will talk. Coco won't talk. If I remember, 
Charlie DePiro has Alzheimer's, dementia. Gallagher took a piece of Jones's bacon, so Charlie is no threat. Here's the deal. Coco was attacked in the Skybox restroom. Is that why you guys left? Asked Gallagher, leaning to a Jones. You were talking to the stats guy, Jerry Johnson. Look, Father, I shut off the lights in the middle of the ruckus and they fled out the door. Fiori was with them and threatening Coco. Gallagher pinched the bridge of his nose. Then he opened his blue eyes. If there was a preliminary deposition, then Lane will... Yes, Father, Herbert Lane will be after more information, and so will the district attorney in Boston. In other words, Coco will disappear forever, said Gallagher. I need to know more about this scandal, said Jones. Gallagher tightened his brow and then snapped his fingers. Billy Bobcat. He was all over sport years before you got to New Hampshire. He knows. So you're friends with this guzzler? Gallagher smiled and snatched another piece of bacon. Then he lifted his orange juice glass. Billy somehow funded the CYO basketball team and helped me coach. If he can stop guzzling, he might be a great reporter. Is he connected to Fiori? asked Jones. Gallagher pursed his lips to prevent him from spraying the orange juice all over the table. The only thing Billy Bobcat is connected to is a 16-ounce of Boston Swasher. Where are you going on vacation, Jim? My sister Abigail and I are flying out with her husband John to St. Martin and the surrounding islands for a few weeks, including St. Bart's. Father Mike will be handling the parish duties. Must pay well being a priest. First of all, they're giving me the vacation as a gift, and the last time I had a vacation was six years ago, less than a year after you took over from Lark Larson. Jones's cell rang on the table. He grabbed it quickly, but it was an unknown number. Ham, how are you doing? asked Jones as Gallagher puffed his cheeks and nodded. Gallagher gave Jones the okay sign and lifted the morning newspaper. Fine, fine. I was wondering if you could travel over to Fletcher Hill tomorrow. Jones nodded even though Ham could not see him. Sure. My cousin is in town and I'd like you to meet him. Let's make it 1 p.m. Bye, said Jones as he held the phone and looked to Gallagher. P.J. Fletcher is Ham's cousin and be at Fletcher Hill tomorrow, Jim. Who is P.J. Fletcher? I have no idea. Chapter 5. The Colonial House Restaurant, Main Street, Hamilton, New Hampshire, April 4th, 3.53 p.m. Jones carried a slew of mail that had been accumulating in his mailbox for days into the Colonial House Restaurant just before dinner. He loved the mix of coffee and food in the air. Hello, Matthias. Nice of you to drop in, said Franny as she hugged him and Jones kissed her. All squeaky clean? Thanks for picking me up, Franny. Could have been worse. The Yellow Dog Cafe. The dive of dives, said Jones as they sat in the booth. Coco is on the periphery of a huge con with this logbook scandal. If it ever goes to the courts in Boston, he could be in deeper from both sides. You told me the guys in the restroom were Fiori guys? And Fiori himself. Jones sat down at the table. Coco called Dulio, and then they disappeared into the night. Gallagher knows some of this, too. But what does father say? He's worried about Coco, and so am I. When Billy Bobcat gets here, maybe he'll have some additional background on the scam. They'll call Coco to testify, Matthias. Maybe. Popular guy getting all that mail, said Franny. Well, it must be a week's worth. 
said Jones, thumbing through the stack. He stared at a handwritten letter. Matthias, said Franny, pointing at the letter. Jones easily opened the envelope with his index finger and pulled out the letter. Postmarked Avondale, Connecticut. Dear Mr. Jones, you best travel to Avondale, Connecticut and speak to Miss Marjorie Reed, a friend of the late John Miller. Signed, Anonymous. Oh my God, said Franny. I'll second that, said Jones. Mailed two days ago, added Franny. He looked into Franny's green eyes. I knew it. There is a connection. Could be a trap, coach. I don't think so. If they thought I was a problem, they'd go after me up here, Franny. What are you going to do? I'll go to Avondale after the Morgan State game. From the front of the restaurant, Lark began banging his knife and fork on the table. Service! Service! I want service! Jones noticed the huge plate of turkey and potatoes half-eaten. Lark, you have your meal right here, said Jones. Don't try and cover up, Franny. Lark, it's Matthias. Oh, is he here too? asked Lark. Jones sat in the booth. He handed the glasses to Lark. When Lark did not take the glasses, Jones secured the glasses in place. Matthias, where did you come from? Indiana, said Jones. Oh, back for vacation. Just a joke, Lark. Look, are you nervous about the wedding? I need a drink. Come on, Lark, you've been with Flo for years. Make it two drinks, 18 years, with a break when that old gray mare, Cora Jefferson, came after me. Just go home after you're done here, watch the game, and relax. How can I get married when my son refuses to sanction the marriage? Who cares what Lester thinks? Lester is a genius. He said so. Yeah, I'm sure he did. He refuses to go to the wedding, Matthias. Consider that a gift from God. What was that, Matthias? Asked Lark, looking over his shoulder. Nothing, nothing. Just stay away from the bottle, Lark. Plastic bottles are dangerous, old boy. No, booze. They don't serve liquor in the Colonial House. Franny walked up to the table. Can I get you a drink, Lark? Lark tried to stand and hit his knees on the table. He shook the plates and the glasses. Matthias just told me you don't serve alcohol. Coffee, Lark? A water? A soft drink? I'm not drunk. Jones stood. Lark, do what you want. Billy Bobcat entered through the front doors. When he saw Lark, he pointed to the left and slinked along the other Colonial House tables in the adjoining room. I'm doomed, doomed. That man hates me because I told the truth. Well, the truth will set you free, Lark, said Jones as he started down back. Free? What's free? asked the penny-pitching Lark. Franny rolled her eyes and Jones met Billy down back. Billy, I see you got back in one piece from the game. Yeah, I was still buzzed at breakfast. Billy looked around. If I remember correctly, I don't serve beer in here, do they? Coffee, Billy? asked Franny. Yeah, make it black with no milk. Well, that's what black is, said Franny, rolling her eyes again. Billy looked confused. Huh? What? Who? Just get him his coffee, Franny, said Jones. I saw you leave with Stefani. We went bar hopping with his uncle Dulio. Dulio Stefani, Notre Dame, what a monster. I saw Fiore and his thugs exit the head right before you and Coco left. So what? Huh? What? Who? Right. I call one of my old contacts, Buster. I know about the logbook scandal and that Coco is up to his armpits. 
I know he had something to say to Herbert Lane. <laughs> I know where Lane buys his toupees. <laughs> Jones was already annoyed with Billy. They were running local channels and Channel Z two minutes behind on certain games and races so they could place their bets before everyone else. You just think I'm some drunken fool, don't you, Jones? Well, I was top-notch at the Gazette till Larson opened his big mouth. Your firing was more Hamilton Fletcher than Lark. Well, Tweedledee-dee. I have sources in Boston that tell me Fiore is going to testify that Charlie DePiro ran the whole scam. No, no, no. Coco said Charlie was against it, Billy. Franny brought the coffees. Billy opened his dark eyes and guzzled the hot coffee. Oh, water, water, water! Franny reached over the next table and swung the glass to Billy. Are you all right, Billy? she asked. Ah, nothing like a hot one after a night of tall frosties. He smacked the water glass on the table. How do you know that Coco's not covering for his old compadre? I know Coco like a brother. No way. He would have told me. You listen to me, Jones. You listen good. I'm officially covering this story. I'll unlock this action. Yes, sir. What do you care about this story, Billy? Billy pounded on the table. I left here in disgrace. That's why everyone needs a shot at redemption, Jones. And just how are you going to be redeemed, Billy? Jones sipped his coffee. I'm not telling you so you can blab my story to the world. I don't care about your story. Nobody knows where Charlie was taken. Yeah, his brain turned to mush, said Billy. Charlie's only 53, 54 years old. Makes no sense. Jones thought for a second. You may have a point, Billy. Locke down front was yelling and waved his arms at a man and a woman by the window. For a man about to be happily married, Locke is acting like a blockhead, said Billy. But then again, <laughs> I once referred to him as a dipstick in one of my columns. He dropped the F-bomb right in front of the Congregational Church in Prince William. Jones shook his head as the man and woman by the next window headed for the door. He sprang to his feet and moved down the aisle. Locke, cool it. He called me Fartmouth. Jones smiled briefly and escorted Locke back to the booth. Just sit tight and I'll have Flo come get you. No, no, that would be bad luck for the wedding. Can't be any worse than your usual luck. What was that, Matthias? Just sit tight, said Jones as he headed with Billy back to the table. What's your next move, Billy? Shoot Lark and put him out of our misery. Jones laughed. Oh, the logbook. I can go to the places that got rooked by the scam. Talk to the owners. Let me know what you find out. I have a game in Connecticut next week after the wedding. I want to see if the bombing near Lawson Stadium is connected. Risky. And going to those logbook owners isn't risky? Without taking risks, you never get the story. Who said that? Walter Cronkite? No, Jerry St. Clair. He used to own the Enterprise in this town. Jones closed his eyes for a second as he visualized the aging newsman with the wrinkled hat and wrinkled suit. I know who he is. A man with an eye for news. Jones flashed a quick smile, the blind leading the blind. To his left, Bucky Driscoll, his stomach bulging over his belt and open security uniform jacket, moved across the Colonial House toward Jones and Billy. He removed a pad and stared at Jones through his glasses. Car tag number 45... 1607AB was seen illegally parked in front of the administration building, 1045 AM. 
Said car was determined to be a rental car in the name of one William Bogdanovich Bohanovich. William Bohanovich of Pembroke Springs Cove, Florida. I am he. He? Come on, pal, don't make up names. I'm Billy. He looked closely at Bucky. You're the idiot who spilled the beer on Vinny Munts. You're not going to pin that one on me, smiley pants. I need did it. Hey, I don't want no lip or I'll have to take you in. Who the hell are you anyways, doofus? Asked Billy in a louder voice. Bucky, get lost, said Jones. Come on, let's go. Down to the campus security station. You're not taking me anywhere, chubby. Hey, how'd you know my nickname from summer camp? Bucky ripped off the ticket and slapped it on the table. You owe the college $352.37. I don't know what you're talking about. Billy pinched the slip off the table and quickly folded it into a paper airplane. Then he pitched it directly at Bucky, and the plane stuck in Bucky's shirt fold. Have a nice flight. I ain't going nowhere. Billy removed his cell phone. I still have connections over at the state police barracks. Pinky Harris, dweeb. Uh-oh. I'll just tell Pinky that you assaulted Vinny Munts. Arnie did it. Beat it, chump. I gotta go now, said Bucky, holding the airplane with his index finger. You do that, Bucky, said Jones, as Bucky slipped across the floor and out of the colonial house. How did that bozo ever become security at the college? asked Billy. It's a long story, Billy. A very long story. Was the bomb in the Mustang a mafia hit? You Just when you think I've run out of wacko characters, let me introduce a crazy reporter named Billy Bobcat. Bobcat is going to the Red Sox game with Jones, Gallagher, and Coco. Then a wild fight with Fiore and his thugs sends Jones and Coco fleeing Fenway Park, but it's the letter from Avondale, Connecticut that hints at solving the mystery of the bombed Mustang and the death of the driver. And Billy Bobcat is in the middle of the whole thing. We'll learn more in Connecticut in episode two of The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, the Dyer's Jones series by Robert P. Fitt. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.